Hello and welcome to the final event in the Institute for Government's Virtual Labour Fringe programme. We'll be talking about learning lessons before launching an inquiry. This event is kindly supported by the British Psychological Society. The government says that it wants to learn from what went wrong in the COVID-19 response, and it's indicated that there will be a public inquiry, although government has also said that now is not the right time. For the next hour, we'll be discussing how government and indeed other organisations should go about learning lessons from what has happened, both in advance of a public inquiry and during the inquiry itself. And more generally, we'll be looking at how to manage accountability, learning lessons and blaming government. Some of the questions we'll be exploring are how should government or any organisation create the right conditions for learning lessons? What's the difference between lesson learning and hold people to, holding people to account? And is it ever right to blame people when things go wrong? Is there a difference between accountability in government and in other organisations? Is the government right that it would be counterproductive to get into a detailed inquiry now? And is it possible to learn lessons while still in the grip of a crisis? We've got a fantastic panel with us to discuss all this and more for the next hour. We've got the Right Honourable David Lammy MP, Shadow Lord Chancellor and Shadow Justice Secretary, who also led the 2017 Lammy Review. We've got Dame Julie Meller, Chair of the Young Foundation and Demos, and a former Chair of the Parliamentary and Health Service Ombudsman. And Catherine Scott, Director of Policy at the British Psychological Society, and a participant on Government's Spy B Group, which has been providing government with behavioural advice during the COVID-19 crisis. We're going to open with some introductory remarks from our panel, then we'll have a discussion between the panel and me before opening up to questions sent in by the audience. So if you're one of the audience, if you're watching, please start sending in your questions as soon as you have them. You can submit questions via the questions and answers option on the live stream page. And um, if you're using Twitter, you can also submit questions via Twitter using the hashtag lab2020 or ifglab2020. This event is on the record, and if you can't catch all of it, there will be a recording available on our website afterwards. OK, so without further ado, um, let's get going. Uh, David, I'm going to come to you first. You've been a government minister. You're now on the shadow front bench. You led the Lamy review and you did your own independent analysis of the London riots. Drawing on this rich experience, how do you think government should be held to account whilst also ensuring lessons are learned on COVID-19? Um, is accountability and lesson learning more difficult in government than other organisations? And should there be a public inquiry? And if so, when? David, over to you. On re uh, reflections and trying, trying as hard as I can, at least to start off by not being too partisan. <laughs> and that is to say that um, obviously, the best way to check any government and any executive in our system is with parliament that is the break if you like on executive power and so you have to constantly ask yourself is that structure if has a significant majority that's hugely important and it's obviously very very topical given that the rules and restrictions that the government are placing the population under, given, if you like, moving beyond a consistent place to a place that ebbs and flows, particularly if we've got to live with the coronavirus, um, uh, is Parliament as effective as it needs to be? And is Parliament way? Um, backbenchers and in the amphitheatre of the House of Commons 
but also the work of select committees and whether that they have quite the power that they should have. I'll just park that there. I obviously led the review into the disproportionality in the criminal justice system. A review really is not, I think, about holding government to account. A review or an inquiry is largely when there's either a very tricky problem that government's struggling with and it needs proper considered thought. And obviously the way I went about doing my review because I've been asked to do it by David Cameron was to um, convene an advisory panel to make that advisory panel cross party and, uh, and clearly also independent. Uh, and then to go about doing that job of work over two years. I produced a review that was widely thought to be a, a good piece of work, accepted on both political sides. I actually reported to Theresa Cameron. But what I would say about doing a review is it requires a serious commitment to good faith. And it, I think it's very, very challenging when government sets up reviews and doesn't implement all of the recommendations, sometimes actually going further than the recommendations, recognising that the problem that I was asked to look into has sadly got worse in our system, not better. And then for inquiries, these are really, really important and very profound. Um, there I'm afraid, looking at Hillsborough, thinking about the Grenfell fa families, this is the area that I think is most, most in need of urgent thinking. Um, I think there's now a sense that people are jaded, people are weary, that there's a kicking into the long grass when you set up an inquiry. I think that, as you would expect, we're living through a time when people are more suspicious of experts than they perhaps were previously. So the idea that a judge or someone from the establishment is trusted quite in the way they might have been 20 or 30 years ago, I'm not sure is quite right. Um, I think that uh, whether that's good or bad, uh, and there's something about the speed with which they can work. So when you look at the way the Americans approach their sort of inquiries, it's like a select committee, it's in the Senate or Congress, it's powerful, people are called in, they're wheeled in very quickly, no one can turn them down. Um, there isn't quite that sense, I think, uh, with an inquiry. Things have gone for very, very, very long. And, and particularly where you've also got a police investigation in, in Grenfell, you've got a police investigation taking place. You don't hear from the police investigation. And actually a lot of people think that some of what's happened amounts to criminality. So there are some real issues, I think, with how the inquiry works, how it commands respect and attention, how it's able to come alongside community, and actually very importantly, uh, the role of lawyers in supporting people who are often uh, vulnerable, disenfranchised, uh, absolutely caught in the spotlight suddenly because of the nature uh, of the tragedy. Uh, another thing that's not gone so well is the, is, the, is the Windrush scandal. Wendy Williams did an excellent review, just like mine. Question, will her recommendations be properly implemented? Uh, and question, 
why is it that the compensation scheme that the government set up of again has denied people the right to lose lawyers, has not had sufficient take up and is largely seen as a pretty mealy mouthed compensation scheme that's asking people to get to the standard of beyond reasonable doubt treating them like criminals when they really ought to be treated as some amongst the most vulnerable victims um, uh, in the system. Just two more things, because if I, I mean, as in my shadow justice brief, I've got to add this into the mix. The everyday way to put checks on government, uh, checks on local authorities, checks on those who make big decisions over our lives, of course, is judicial review. And here, here again, um, uh, the executive is challenging judicial review, asked at doing a review into judicial review when it's not clear that there's anything to fix. And we're getting this tone about overreach from our judiciary. And you know, generally speaking in democracies, when we start to challenge our judiciary and the independence of our judiciary, we're into a worrying place. So what is the evidence for overreach? What, what, what is the evidence that they're not on the side of the public? Um, I think we're in this curious place where constantly institutions, whether it's parliament, whether it's our judiciary, are being put um, almost in competition to the public, everybody except the executive. So that's my starter for 10. David, thank you. That was a really um, compelling description of the different routes available to hold government to account. And I particularly in questions want to come back to some of your comments on public inquiries and how we might reform them to make them more effective and um, something that the Institute has also done work on. Um, Julie, I'm going to come to you now. You spent five years running the Health Ombudsman where you oversaw a tenfold increase into investigations of complaints into, about public services and helped ensure that learning and accountability flowed from that. Um, so how can government and other organisations best respond to mistakes and create the conditions for learning? Is it ever right to blame people when things go wrong? And what does all this mean for accountability and learning on COVID-19? I want to make the case that if we want to create the conditions for learning and if we have any hope of whatever is done having legitimacy with the public, we need to take an approach that is completely different to anything that has been done previously even if it's labelled a public inquiry. Um, and I want to argue that we should involve the public um, from start to finish. And a first step would be to ask the relevant select committees in Parliament to commission a citizens assembly to develop the terms of reference. So why do I think that? So I, I was really intrigued by this question of what's the difference between learning and accountability, because for me and for the public, my experience at the Ombudsman Service, they are the same thing because they are not about blame. So um, I'm, I'm clear I'm just for people in the audience um, to say what the Ombudsman Service does so that you've got a bit of context. So the Ombudsman Service is the is the decision maker of last resort, where if an individual takes a complaint against a public service and we did the NHS and all central government departments um, and they're not satisfied with the outcome, uh, with the service in question, they can come to the Ombudsman Service for a, an investigation and a final decision. Um, and we did a lot of research in my first year with the public and the public were really clear that the, the one reason they wanted to complain was to prevent what happened to them happening to anybody else. 
They didn't talk about blame. They wanted something that was open where people could, could be, it was safe and people could be honest about the possibility of mistakes having happened. They wanted an acknowledgement of something had gone wrong and they wanted this relevant service to actually demonstrate what it had done to improve the service as a result of the learning. That's what they wanted. Sadly, their experience has been otherwise. And what we found was a toxic cocktail where institutions were defensive, reluctant to open up, inhibited about learning. And the public, as a result, felt the process lacked legitimacy. They didn't trust it, and so they didn't complain. Or if they did complain, by the time they came to us, they'd had such a bad experience of that defensiveness and the, uh, uh, that, that actually they became entrenched in their own view that they were right. Whereas when we investigated, we upheld less than 50% in hospitals and lower than that in, in most other uh, organizations. And so they did end up wanting to blame and wanting blood, wanting someone's head to roll. So, so how do we, we shift that? Um, <clears throat> so, no, so, so, so then just to say that I fear that we will have the same fate of any public inquiry, that it won't have public legitimacy and it will be about blame unless we start quickly, because I think there's a better chance of it being open if it starts quickly and we do it differently. So how do we shift that toxic cocktail to something that is open to learning? I, had the, I just wanted to tell a little story about a family that I worked with, a privilege to work with the most generous spirited family. Their toddler had died of sepsis. It was an avoidable death, which means if, but if, if without the mistakes, that child would have lived. And those parents were so generous spirited that they argued staff are also, were also scarred by their, by their child's death, that staff feared being blamed and weren't supported to explore if mistakes had been made. And therefore that staff experienced an injustice too. And that made it, and that resulted that the institution became more defensive and less, less likely to get near the truth um, because it wasn't supporting individuals uh, who, who were closest to what happened in uh, dealing with it openly. So I think we've got to remember when we're thinking what we design, and this is taking it out of politics with a capital P for a minute, you know, this pandemic is unprecedented in terms of its test of our machinery of state, and our machinery of state has been found ill-prepared and in poor repair. And ministers and officials are having to make decisions with imperfect data on matters that affect the lives of every single citizen of the UK. And they will only know in hindsight if that decision turned out for the best. And so they will be anxious about their responsibilities and the scale of what's happening, as well as fear of blame. And we've already seen several public servants leave, leave high profile roles. So I think the blame game never works if you want learning. Um, and it comes about only if an institution fails to learn and isn't open to learning. Um, and it, it, it mitigates against learning because those with the most knowledge of what's happened are put into a defensive mindset. So to me, the kind of critical success factors for whatever we do are public trust, which comes from it being open, learning and accountable for the learning, psychological safety for people giving evidence and a mechanism to hold uh, the relevant institutions to account for making the changes. And this is something I know in the Institute for Government's own research. I think it's something like six out of 68 public inquiries since 1990 have been followed up by Parliament. But I think the other overwhelming uh, reason um, 
uh, to involve the public is because um, this will be the first public inquiry that is about something that seriously affects the lives of every citizen. So the scale of direct public interest demands a new approach. So I would say, how do you deal with that? Four things. Public set the terms of reference, I've already mentioned, get Parliament uh, select committees to commission a citizens assembly. Um, Parliament have experience of doing it, so it wouldn't be a first. They've done it fairly recently on the funding of social care and only last week on um, how does government get to net zero or we get to net zero by 2050 as required in law. The second thing I'd say, and apologies, David, to you as a lawyer, but don't lawyer up. Um, I have found it fascinating listening to a lawyer that had led a very big public inquiry who said lawyers are trained and used to an adversarial system. If you involve lawyers, it will focus on blame, have more of a focus on blame. It will be harder to get to the learning in this kind of very public public inquiry. And then the third thing I'd say is once you've established the facts, give the public the job of making the recommendations. I think the, the the, the wider public will be much more confident about the perception and reality that it isn't rigged if it's the public that come up with the recommendations. And that's because they're unencumbered by any need to consider their popularity like politicians are. They're brilliant at compromising. They're brilliant at managing trade-offs and making recommendations between universality of a service and not increasing taxes. And therefore, I think a Citizens' Assembly recommendations would enable politicians to be brave. And the, the last thing would be Parliament should agree up front that it's going to hold government to account for the action it takes based on the learning. Julie, thank you. Um, really uh, compelling description of how to reform the public inquiry process and particularly interested in spending a bit more time on the, um, the citizen assembly um, approach that you've suggested. Um, before we come on to that, Catherine, I'm, I'm going to come to you now. Uh, you're the director of policy at um, BPS and a participant on SPI-B, and you focus on how psychology should inform government decision making. So what are the psychological underpinnings of accountability? Julie has started to touch on this. Um, what does best practice tell us? about how to balance that um, you know sometimes legitimate desire for blame with the need to learn um, and what does this mean for better government and decision making in the COVID-19 crisis? Thank you um, so as psychologists we we like to think about both individuals and and the context or the environment in which they're operating in so we think in systems uh, but we focus on the people uh, at every kind of part of the policy and decision making process within that system so I want to consider what accountability looks like at those different levels. So I want to talk briefly about the psychology of surrogate decision making, so making decisions on behalf of others, and also a little bit about um, actually what, what Judy just mentioned about psychological safety um, in an organisation and what that might mean for a future inquiry. So when, when people are making decisions on behalf of others, so surrogate decision making, um, we call it, we think differently. And, and there are a number of factors that, that come into play and, and these all would need to be kind of understood through the process of, of inquiry. So these can include distance. So that's how far physically are we from those who are impacted by a policy, but also what that means in terms of relative privilege and economic terms. We need to ask the question, are our policymakers representative of those communities that they, that they serve? And then there's also a bit around the kind of psychological understanding of risk perception of the kind of numbers of people that who've been impacted by a disaster or, or a disease. And in thinking about that, we need to confront what what Professor Paul Slovich calls the deadly arithmetic of compassion. 
and that the more people who die, the, the less we care, you know, and that's a concept that we know as, as psychic numbing, you know, and that distance that that creates, the bigger the numbers get. We, we do value individual lives greatly, but those lives lose their value in face of greater threats and as those, those numbers get bigger. And then I think there's also a serious empathy gap. So we know through psychological research that our ability to take another person's perspective with any sense of accuracy is actually really small. And that means both that we can get decisions that we make on behalf of others completely wrong. And secondly, it means that we miss the emotion. We miss how those decisions make people feel. And we know that even through studies of doctors who are working face to face with patients. And we know that they've been known to kind of underestimate the pain that that patient in front of them is in so you can imagine how that challenge translates to policymakers with people that they will never meet so i think the lesson here for a covid inquiry is to think about in very similar to what julie's just said actually about how and when to involve those people whose lives have been impacted there's a choice here and as you know as we're thinking about about these terms of reference you know we, there's various flavours of, of inquiry that we might get. We could get one that's very process and procedurally focused, or we could get one that asks how people felt about the policy decisions that were made. We could get people wanting to understand what could have been done to reduce their anxiety, the anxiety that people are feeling on a on a day-to-day -day basis and how those decisions taken in, you know, in Whitehall and Westminster actually impacted them in their homes. So, we know there are some challenges around accountability. So I, I want to look at kind of how do we incorporate that into a process where we can foster learning rather than blame. And this is where the, the concept of psychological safety comes in. So it's a term actually devised by um, Professor Amy Edmondson, who's a psychologist at Harvard. And she explains it as a belief that you will not be punished or humiliated for speaking up with ideas, questions, concerns or mistakes. So it's the belief that you will not be exposed to a threat to yourself, your social identity or your status in the workplace by raising concerns. So it's about environment and about context. And we know that many people feel they can't speak up even in normal working environments. So adding a political dimension makes it even more difficult. So best practice, we know that in most workplaces, that means framing challenge as learning. It means having leaders who acknowledge fallibility and who, mod who model curiosity. It means having leaders who rather than say, well, why didn't you come to me with that risk or with that challenge? But those who say, you know, I wonder what it is about my behavior or about the structures that we've created that has presented this challenge from being heard. So that's a culture question. And so this is what you see in places where we do have good practice, like, you know, the, the MOD's reasonable challenge guidance, companies who work with a culture of red teams, you know, and, and the, um, there's lots of kind of examples from the airline industry where they have a, an operational mod methodology called PACE, which is about encouraging co-pilots co to, to probe for better understanding, to alert their captain if they feel there's an, an, an anomaly, excuse me, put my teeth back in, um, and also to kind of challenge, challenge the, the strategy that's in play and, and for emergency warnings as well. 
So it's also important to note that psychological safety isn't actually something that's just built up over time. It doesn't mean need teams that have been together for a long time to build that. And actually, some of the best examples of teamwork come from teams that have been established in response to a crisis. And you know that you can be drawing similarities from that with thinking about all the different bits of the civil service and different members of the civil service who would never have worked together before. And that there must be, you know, they're all new teams, so they don't have those established norms. So again, we, this brings us back to kind of what those terms of reference could look like, you know, and we may be thinking about encouraging something that goes beyond kind of procedures and process and procurement decisions and to actually think about what systemic change needs to happen and to be thinking about culture. And so another big recommendation here for us as, as the BPS is that we would like an inquiry to include not just what decisions were made and, and who by, but what context they were made in. What is the culture around those decision makers and were they able to operate from a place of psychological safety? Was there a culture where people could raise concerns without fear they would lose their jobs or were they worried they'd be scapegoated? And I think also this might be something that we could pick up on. It's also about that because I'm representing a kind of uh, the psychological discipline. I'm recommending representing a body of scientists you know and I'd also like to include an inquiry that looked at the culture of evidence use and the the relationships around challenge concern and ideas from scientists and, and experts and how that was how that was heard and whether we could kind of be integrating that kind of sense of kind of professional humility and curiosity around the evidence base as well as kind of some of that decision making so um yeah that's my opening but I'll, I'll leave it there Brilliant. Thank you, Catherine. A really fascinating insight into some of the psychological underpinnings of this. Um, and again, you know, an emphasis there on the dangers of blame culture and really interesting points on um, including context um, when it comes to decision making. So I'm going, I've got a few questions that I'd like to ask the panel. Um, I want to remind um, the audience again that there is also going to be an opportunity for you to ask questions. Um, so please do use the Q&A function uh, on this event to ask questions or ask them via Twitter. Um, so one of the things that I think um, all of you mentioned is the importance of reforming the public inquiry process. I think I, I certainly um, got a sense that you will feel it's not working as effectively as it could be. Julie, you outlined um, some really powerful changes, um, including a much greater role uh, for the public. Um, David um, and then Catherine, I wanted to come to you both first um, to ask, what do you think um, the reform of the public inquiry process should look like? And uh, do you agree that there should be a citizen's jury or at least a much greater role for the public um, in any inquiry on COVID? David, I might come to you first. Well, I think the starting point is the tradition is to appoint someone from the great and good. The government makes that call and makes that judgment. It doesn't currently really make that judgment in consultation with the opposition or with Parliament. I'm not sure that's any longer satisfactory. Um, and I think it's particularly problematic where you have high profile cases that may involve um, state power and questioning of state power and state decisions. And clearly Grenfell falls into that category. And I think we learned from Hillsborough that there, that there was a relationship between the government and policing at that time and a desire, frankly, to cover up. Uh, and so I think there does have to be a different way of coming to the truth with a panel of concerned individuals. 
And my starting point for that would be parliamentary uh, because parliament isn't afraid of government. If you see what I mean, it's, its whole job is to challenge government in our system. Um, uh, uh, but I, I like the idea, I mean, certainly in my book, I talked about citizens' assemblies and the role of citizens' assemblies and that sort of renewal of, 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 of democracy. So I quite like that idea. I'm not announcing Labour front policy from the front bench because <laughs> uh, we're a long way off uh, Labour having to produce its manifesto. But I do like that. And I do recognise that you might need more than just Parliament, particularly in framing the terms of reference and getting on with things. But there are some other things I'd want to mention. Oversight and ensuring that recommendations are followed through, ensuring that there are three year, five year updates from those recommendations, holding those who are meant to take forward those recommendations to account for what has gone on, I think is really important. So oversight, I think is important. And then there are real issues, again, when you're dealing with the potential for serious cover up. Clearly, if you look at Grenfell, we're talking about some very big um, uh, uh, private organisations in construction that have the means to cover up and you have government, local authority and others also in the frame. And therefore, you have to have a new kind of public accountability and there is actually a private members public accountability bill um, uh, before parliament which is about finding ways very early on to convene the the information and and, and hand that information if you like to, to the victims of, of tragedies and things and put power back into their hands i think that things like duty of candor um uh, the, the, the encouraging if you like whistleblowing um, and thinking hard about that is really, really important. You know, there's a sort of assumption that, in a sense, Britain's alive. But often you do get the truth, but you might not get the truth in Britain for a good 30 years. <laughs> That's the general kind of assumption. And we've just got to do better now. And I think the public appetite, the world we're in, the, and perhaps also a more fragmented, divided, polarised society where trust isn't the same as it was in a more homogenous country um, 30 or 40 years ago it requires this kind of this kind of reform. I hear, okay. sorry, last point, I hear what was said about lawyers. I've just got to, I mean, I think that, um, that Perhaps in the kind of inquiry that, that, that will take place as a result of the pandemic and how the pandemic was handled, where it may not be the case that criminality uh, is being looked at, yes. But where you've got families challenging state power, Hillsborough, Grenfell, Marchioness, those sorts of tragedies, I'm afraid you have to, you have to arm those families with an independence and an articulacy and, an, and a power in the system. And the only means by which democratic societies have come up with that is through parliament and through their own independent legal advice. So I, I do think there's got to be a role for lawyers and shutting them out is dangerous.
Thank you, David. Catherine, I wanted to come back to you on um, the reform process for public inquiries. Yeah, How should I mean, they change? I, I think what what Julie was saying about, you know, I think that there's a real point around another sort of objective of an inquiry is about for the, you know, for the public to feel heard, for those who've been impacted to feel heard. There's a sense of catharsis about, you know, being able to kind of get justice for, for, for who was involved. And then there's also another objective around kind of faith and trust in, in government and in public institutions. And I think that's where, because the kind of what we're looking at with, with, the, um, with a COVID inquiry would be so broad. I think if you asked the public, what do you want out of this? You know, that's what they're going to want to hear. You know, they're going to want to explain how they felt about what a policy meant to them. They're going to explain how not being able to go and hug their grandma was really, you know, upsetting for them. And, you know, and that's the sort of message that you don't get heard at a sort of normal interaction with, with level of interaction with government. So it is that sense of, you know, that there's a what, what we encounter as a kind of psychologist working with with public policy and with government is there's almost a sense that you can design policy that won't affect people emotionally, you know, that that it's all very black and white. It's all very process driven, whereas actually, you know, you can create fear with policy, you can create stigma, you can create shame, you can, you know, you can create inclusion and you can create a sense of identity and there's things you can do in response to that. So I think if you, you know, I, I understand the sort of difference between different types of inquiry, but, you know, as, as we're thinking about this being un, unprecedented and, and involving almost every single person um, of the, um, in the UK, sorry, my son has just come home. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I think that is where if you ask the, the public to get involved in that and said to them, you know, what's important? What lessons do you want the government to learn? I think you'd get a very different type of inquiry. Thanks, Catherine. Um, Julie, I wanted to pick up on the question of time um, and the appropriate timing for an inquiry. David, you said that um, you know, sometimes we get we get the truth, but we can wait 30 years for it. And one of the questions I've got coming through on the Q&A is when what's a reasonable amount of time for a public inquiry? Is there a danger that by opening up the kind of scope of an inquiry, that introducing new mechanisms for involvement actually lengthens um, the inquiry process? And means, for instance, in uh, the case of a COVID inquiry, that we could be looking at an even longer uh, period for, for hearing inquiry conclusions. Um, I suppose what I'm really asking is how important is speed and what's the balance between um, speed and giving enough time to really get truth and make sure the public feel involved? 